Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, it started out okay, better than okay. It was good. Jacob and his family were living in the land of Goshen, the best part of the land of Egypt, but not because of anything they had done. In fact, it is in spite of what they had done. It was the hand of God at work. What about their hands? Well, Jacob, he was no paragon of virtue. He was a liar and deceiver. And his sons, well, they followed in his steps. They wanted to kill their brother, but settled for the next best thing, selling him into slavery in another land. Either way, they'd be rid of him. Either way, they were better off without him. Or so they thought. But God preserved Joseph so that he could preserve Jacob and his family. Not that they deserved preserving, but God had promised. And a promise is a promise. He promised that one of Jacob's descendants would be the Messiah. I'm going to pause for a moment. Do you remember what the title Messiah, which is also the same word as Christ, do you remember what it means? Got to be really, oh, really loud. What is it? Maybe I didn't hear you. What did? Like a king, you're close. Someone else? What does it literally mean? Yeah, this would be a ruler. You're really, really warm. But literally, what does the word mean? Come on, eighth graders. Help me out. All right, Michael. Anointed one. The Messiah is the anointed one, the, God, the one God would anoint to, to save people from their sins, to open the kingdom of heaven to us. And ultimately, that Messiah, the Christ, he would come through the line of Jacob. He would be a descendant of Jacob. And it's Jesus who is anointed at his baptism, remember what God the Father said? This is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. Because he had come into the world to open heaven to us. To have mercy on all of us. Every single human being who has ever lived on this earth. So, going back. So God preserved Jacob and his family. And then he, he did it in a way that there would be no question about whose doing this was. This is God's doing. Things were good for the Israelites. But as time rolled on, Jacob died, Joseph died, all the brothers died, the Pharaoh, who was so appreciative to Joseph, well, he died too. 
And after a generation or two or three, when the famine was but a faint memory, remember, Joseph was the one who interpreted the dreams so that they made sure that they had enough food for the famine. Remember that? But when that was not remembered anymore, things got very, very bad for God's people. The Egyptians forced the Israelites into slavery, and they treated them shamefully. They really hurt them. As a result, the people of Israel, the children who had descended from Jacob, they cried out to the Lord, saying, Lord, have mercy. Let's say it together. Lord, have mercy. It's been the cry of God's people in this fallen world ever since the fall. Let's say it again. Lord, have mercy. We read that God heard. God remembered. God saw. And he heard their cry. He remembered his promise. He saw this people from whom his own son would be born into the world and their affliction. And it says, he knew. He knew. He knew them as Adam knew his wife Eve. He loved them. He knew them, for they were his bride. That's what the scriptures say. And he knew what he would do. He would rescue them. He would have mercy on them. He would show them his powerful right hand. For his hand was still at work not just to save them, but to save the world. And he did just that. He saved them by miraculously leading them out of Egypt. Remember, and as he had, really it was the, the hand of the Lord through the hand of Moses when he lifted it up and it created a way through the, the Red Sea. So the Israelites went through on dry ground and Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed. He had mercy on them. And he did it in a miraculous way. And throughout the wilderness wanderings, he continued to have mercy on them, even though they didn't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. And remember how then they, he opened the waters of the Jordan River, and they passed through into the promised land. He saved them. He had mercy on them. He brought them into the promised land. This is what God does for all of us, ultimately. So now, let's go forward a bit. So it was that God's right-hand man, and who's God's right-hand man? Who's God's right-hand man? Jesus, right. He found himself near Jericho, that day, generations later, in the midst of another people in slavery, but a worse kind of slavery than Egypt because most didn't even know it was slavery. 
They were slaves to sin, just like you and me. Some knew it. Some whose lives had started out okay, maybe even good, but then the oppression of sin burdened them in obvious ways, like blindness, like Bartimaeus. Now, to be sure, when thing, bad things happen to us physically, we get sick or become blind or can't walk or get cancer, none of that is what, because of what we specifically do, but it's because, in general, of our fallen nature, because of our, our sin. And the wages of sin ultimately is, is death. So if there were no sin, there would be no disease, no death, no blindness. But Bartimaeus, he was blind. And so he echoed the cry of the people, God's people, of Israel and Egypt. He said, Jesus, son of David. Oh, come on. You've got to be with me. What's the word here? Have mercy on me. Ready? Mercy. Jesus, son of David. And Jesus knew. He knew who he was and what he had come to do. And he sets Bartimaeus free with just a word. Go your way, he said. Your faith has made you well. That's what Jesus said. And then he continued on his way, on his way to the cross. The place where he who knew no sin became sin for us. Our poverty became his poverty. Our fear became his fear. Our suffering became his suffering. Our guilt became his guilt. Our punishment became his punishment. Our death became his death. But flip it around. What did that mean? It meant this. His riches became our riches. His peace became our peace. His joy became our joy. His forgiveness became our forgiveness. His innocence became our innocence. His life became our life. Our life that passes through suffering and death and into the glory of God. So today we come to this place known as the church because Jesus Son of David, the promised Messiah, the Father's right-hand man, well, <laughs> he's here. And we cry out, Kyrie eleison, or Lord, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. He hears our cries and our prayers. He remembers the promises he made to us in baptism. Remember that? I will be with you always. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I am with you to save you. He remembers that promise. He remembers. And he has mercy. So what do we do? We take our place with Jacob's family, with Bartimaeus, and a multitude of other 
of God's people through the centuries. We take our place with them and cry out, Lord. And no matter how often we cry out, our Lord never tires of hearing it, for he is the God of mercy, for it is our cry of faith. Faith in the one who is mercy, who we know will keep and fulfill every promise to us through all the twists of turns of life and no matter where life takes you, that fact remains the same. So the first ordinary of our liturgy, and that's what we're talking about throughout this Lenten season, the ordinaries, the ordinary that is ordinarily in every service, is the Kyrie, Lord, and it's part of our ordinary Lenten exodus. For with it, we take our place in the great exodus of God's people, from Adam and Eve all the way to today, following our Savior and the glorious freedom he has won for us all in his suffering, death, and resurrection. Amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard our hearts and our lives in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.